Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross, Nadal, and Djokovic return and take titles in Dubai and Acapulco. They take care of business. I'll talk about that. Uh, Jeff Salzenstein will join the program. I want to do more and more of this. I will do more and more of this, uh, but this will be a, uh, a longer episode of Monday Match Analysis because I do have a guest and uh, again, I want to stress um, that I want to do this more often. Um, French Open Power Rankings, the first edition of the French Open Power Rankings. I will reveal, it, it feels a little bit silly because we're not playing on clay yet, but the people want it. I will deliver, and then uh, we will get to comment response at the end. So much to get into. Uh, the thumbnail is split between Djokovic and Nadal. Nadal rocking the Acapulco sombrero for the third time in his career. Djokovic fired up, playing Dubai for the first time in a couple of years. He's He hasn't played there in a bit. Um, and uh, he returns in fashion. Got a lot of crowd support this week, I felt. Maybe I'm crazy. I, I thought so. Um, we will start with Novak Djokovic. Uh, I'll discuss his final with Stefanos Tsitsipas. Uh, it was a straight set victory for Djokovic that was reminiscent of some of the other victories that he's had recently in the last year or so where I didn't see this as a dominant victory for Djokovic. I think that there were times in the match where Tsitsipas seemed like the better player, but he could not use that and take advantage and get out to a lead. It felt like he was putting more pressure on Djokovic than Djokovic was putting pressure on him. But in the latter stages of the first set, even though Tsitsipas was a bit sharper, he could not get that break advantage. And it was Djokovic at 3-4 Tsitsipas serving. It was Djokovic who was the first to actually get that break. A couple good points for Djokovic. Tsitsipas... Missed a couple forehands in that game. And then at 30-40 break point, Novak had an incredible and spectacular sliding backhand pass that really not a lot of players, if any, could have pulled off. So it looked like when I was watching that point, I thought, what a, what a beautiful break point save this is about to be. And just like that, Djokovic takes it away from Stefanos. It was the best shot that he had hit all set. It was the first backhand winner he had hit in the entire set. And I want to stress that Djokovic was not spectacular in this first set by any stretch of the imagination, but um, he pulled it out. Tsitsipas is someone who has had a fair, 
fair bit of success against Djokovic on, on a few occasions. And I felt that Novak, for the first time, was able to exploit one of Pass's weaknesses. And specifically, that is something I want to show via slides. So this is just a good uh, second serve return here. Djokovic getting up above his shoulders. And by the way, I feel like I'm a little bit quiet if I'm looking at my levels. So I'm going to up my mic a little bit. Up the volume. Testing. There we go. Um, I felt that Djokovic returned really well in this match. And that there were periods of time where Tsitsipas got a couple aces, got a couple of free points. But I think... If you look at the games where Djokovic broke Stefanos, though there was the, the returning was really uh, strong from Djokovic and got the better of Titi Pass. Uh, here's a big point: fifteen thirty second serve return, a really good second serve that jumps above Djokovic's shoulders, but Novak is so strong above his shoulders with the two handers. He hits a good return here. It's deep. It's pretty strong. Pass rallies. Um, Djokovic goes with the forehand. But what I want to point out is that Novak, I thought, added a little bit of shape and topspin on his ground strokes when attacking the Pass backhand. And he's done that in the past. I mean, Djokovic has attacked Pass's backhand in the past. But in my opinion, not properly. Something that Sasha Zverev has done really well against Pass. Zverev, uh, I think has a, I'm pretty sure has a positive head to head against Tsitsipas, is he hits with heavy topspin and shape to Stefanos's backhand. When you get it above shoulder level, he doesn't handle it all that well. Djokovic naturally is a player who doesn't have a lot of variety in his heights and even his spins off the ground. He's someone who, and I think this has hurt him against your Stan Wawrinka's of the world, he he just doesn't mix it up all that much compared to um, certainly Federer and Nadal, for example. But in this match, I felt like he employed some variety. Extra shape, extra top spin. Here's the next shot in the rally, a backhand, Right? And you see how this forehand from, excuse me, you see how this forehand from Djokovic kicks up high on Steph? Look where it is at contact. Stefanos is a tall guy, six foot four. He's hitting this shoulder height. He's not that strong yet at shoulder height. I don't know if he'll ever get there, but he doesn't have, you know, I think that I think that Federer got better when he flattened it out. And maybe Tsitsipas needs to work on that. When when it's high on Federer, he either slices it. Or Federer flattens it out, um, but for a while, for a while, Federer was a little bit weak above the shoulders, and I think he sorted that out in 2017. Vavrinka is so darn strong that he's just really good above his shoulders. Tsitsipas just isn't there yet. Look at the next backhand from Djokovic. Look at that net clearance. That's like four feet or more, maybe five feet of net clearance. And uh, heavy topspin on the Djokovic backhand. Not how Djokovic usually hits his backhand. But he did it really nicely against Tsitsipas. And look, the next ball, he can attack inside in with the forehand down the line. Because uh, the incoming ball is just a little bit weak. So he does that. Um, 
So a good, a good job from Djokovic. Another thing that was very apparent all week for Djokovic was the drop shots, especially on the backhand. Novak doesn't have much of a forehand drop shot, but his backhand drop shot has always been something to watch out for. He likes to hit it down the line more so than cross-court, but here's an instance where he goes cross-court. The disguise is good because it kind of looks like a, a slice backhand. Uh... But it's not. It's a drop shot. A cross-court drop shot, and Tsitsipas doesn't return this. Djokovic was really good with the backhand drop shot throughout the week in Dubai. It was very apparent, especially against Karen Hatchinov. And let's be real. I mean, Karen Hatchinov is not, you know, he doesn't have the best feel. He's not tremendous at the net. So it was a really good play against someone who you don't really want to give rhythm from the baseline because Hatchinov can hurt Djokovic with his power. Djokovic turned it into more of a cat and mouse game, brought him to the net and, you know, made him dig out low balls, continental grip coming in, uh, exposed Hatchinov's um, quickness or maybe his first step isn't as quick. So he did that really well. By the way, I think drop shots work pretty well against Tsitsipas too because I don't think his drop shot retrieval is all that great. I think he gets there. I just don't think he's all that creative um, with his feel once he gets there. I think normally he punches it deep and you can get a good look at the pass. But I think why this is important for Djokovic is his backhand isn't all that big. His forehand is bigger than his backhand. It's a point I like to emphasize because when, when you talk about Djokovic, you naturally talk about the backhand. The backhand isn't as big as the forehand. But if you can have players weary of the drop shot, which means they, they can't really hang back, they can't drop back too far because they're worried about the drop shot. And sometimes you have them kind of staying on their front toes instead of getting on their heels, uh, waiting to defend laterally. If When Djokovic mixes in the drop shot, he makes his drives that much more potent when he does decide to drive the backhand. It's that much more potent if you don't allow players to really drop back um, and take a defensive posture. So it's a really good play for Djokovic, and and we'll see if he continues to to use it to success. I have a feeling he will. Uh, it's just just a really good offensive weapon, and sometimes he gets himself into trouble trying to end points too quickly. Certainly, we've seen that um, against Nadal in Rome. That's one big example where Djokovic just seemed too weary to really dig in and suffer with Nadal and was going to the drop shot, and it was a disaster for him. And uh, we'll monitor that. We'll monitor that. Okay, those are the main points with Djokovic. Again, he elevated in the big moments there, and Tsitsipas played a couple loose games, but this was a strange match. It just felt like it was even, 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 and all of a sudden Djokovic would just kind of flip things and, and grab a late break. It, it was weird. But I, like, I don't think that Djokovic outplayed Tsitsipas to a great extent in this match. I just think he was better when it counted. And that's just become a common theme, and it's 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 incredible that he continues to be able to do this. And then the the Monfils match, Gale was playing so well, so so well in this match, but Monfils choked. He did. He choked. End of the second set in the tiebreak. 
Uh, three match points. Monfils choked. And then he ran out of gas. Monfils will run out of gas. He will. That's what's going to happen. That's why I think he's a big-time threat in best of three with the way he's playing, but he's not a threat in best of five. That's my take on Gail Monfils right now. I think he's a massive threat at Indian Wells in Miami, just not in best of five because I think his gas tank is too big an issue in best of five. Uh, let's move on to Nadal. Had an easier path compared to Djokovic. Didn't play someone like Tsitsipas in the final. He played Taylor Fritz. Um, you know... Don't 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 get mad at me for saying that. Djokovic won Tokyo, didn't play anyone last year. So this was a little bit similar where and the reason I bring attention to it is because it's hard to get a lot of big big time takeaways from a from a week unless these guys are really challenged. I mean when it's hard to have takeaways from a first or second round match where someone wins, you know, three and three or three and one or something like that. It's hard to have takeaways because some players just aren't good enough to really push these guys. And that's how it is for Nadal. That was somewhat the case this week. I will say this against Taylor Fritz. I have a couple points to make one. This match against Fritz uh, was the most I've seen Nadal willing to run and defend on a hard court as a game plan in a really long time. It was truly Nadal's game plan to look to extract errors out of Fritz with his defense. I have not seen that on a hard court in a very long time. It tells me Nadal is feeling great physically. I believe he is. Based on how he was playing, it was a bit of a throwback performance from Nadal. He was winning a lot of points scrambling on a hard court. I have not seen that in a bit. I've seen it in spurts when he needs to. Medvedev in the U.S. Open final, sure. Djokovic ATP Cup, you know, was he was he doing a fair bit of defending and having a, having some success in that match? Sure. But as a game plan, it's been a while since I've seen Nadal comfortable enough to be like, you know what? I don't think the best way to beat this guy is dictating. I'm going to win with my defense. Especially on the return games. That's what Nadal did in this match. Uh, Fritz had massive trouble with the return. I mean, massive trouble. Was not returning second serves well enough to win the match. Uh, and Taylor wasn't very calm. Seemed on edge. Seemed frustrated. On serve in the first set, he already looked like he was losing. It's a problem. Fritz works very hard. He is very professional. Um... But this was a case where he seemed pretty overwhelmed and he didn't really seem to have his head on straight because when you are panicking on serve in the first set, you are sending a message across the court that, that you're in trouble where he shouldn't, have, he shouldn't have felt that way. One thing I want to point out is that Fritz was, uh, was trying to take the ball on the rise but became very predictable on his, back, on his backhand and Nadal was eating him up eating him up because Fritz was not taking his backhand down the line. I've pointed this out with Djokovic. I've pointed this out with Fanini. There are a few players who are able to not only take Nadal's topspin forehand, and it's got more topspin than anyone on tour, not only can they take it on the rise, take it early, but they can change direction at the same time. Requires incredible talent. Requires incredible 
timing. But if you can't do it, and you take the ball on the rise, Nadal will eat you up as long as his down-the-line forehand is working. And his down-the-line forehand was working in this match. So I saw a lot of high, loopy, defensive forehands cross-court from Nadal. And Fritz would step in. This one was a return. Fritz would step in and take it on the rise. That's what he needs to do, play offensive. But look at Nadal just camp in the corner here. He's Not only is he not recovered to the middle, maybe I don't think he had time to anyway, but he's literally leaning to his left. He's saying, Fritz is taking this off the hop. And at this point in the second set, Nadal just knew he's not redirecting this. He's going back cross court. And Nadal's waiting there, and now he's going to redirect. That's a clean winner. It's a tactic Nadal had tons of success uh, with in this match. And it goes back to how willing he was to defend because there was so much high loopy cross court and turning defense into offense against Fritz. That's how he got most of his breaks of serve. It's been a while since I've seen it on a hard court. Excuse me. Um, so positive signs from Nadal there. So now I want to turn it to an interview I did a little bit earlier today with Jeff Salzenstein. There's a couple things I love about talking to Jeff. One is he brings a perspective from a, uh, someone who's been on the tour for, I think, close to, if, if not 10 years, close to 10 years. Uh, someone who's been in the top 100, someone who has played the best players in the world. So he brings that perspective. And uh, he also always says how he feels and does not sugarcoat it, even if he has unconventional views. So I think you'll enjoy this. Jeff Salzenstein is the founder of Tennis Evolution and a former top 100 pro. Here you go. Jeff Salzenstein, thank you so much for coming on. Long time no speak, but uh, people have been clamoring for, for us to, to get back together and uh, rekindle these conversations. Yeah, it's Not great. To be I miss you. You're like my you're like my little brother on YouTube. Uh, I feel I feel a, a kindred spirit with our passion for the game, the way we see the game. When I initially reached out to you uh, a year or so ago, I just I love the work that you're doing uh, for a guy who didn't play at the highest level of the game. Uh, I know, you know, you know the game very well and you, and you deserve to, to get all of the accolades that you've been getting. So thanks for having me on, on your show and, and a part of this video today. I missed you too. Thanks for that. Um, so I've been on we'll your channel. We'll do some lives again. We'll yep. do some lives again. Yeah. I've been on your channel many times. This is the first time you've come on mine. So let's, uh, let's have you introduce yourself to, Sure. I'm sure most of our audience is the same people, but for, for those... <laughs> For those who, who are not, um, tell us about what you do at, uh, at Tennis Evolution and Racket Fit and all that. Sure. So I'm going to start with a quick story. Uh, when I was 19 years old, uh, I tell people, and, and it's the truth, I had one of, if not the worst serves in college tennis. I played number five for Stanford. I'm repping Stanford today. It's, it's cold here in Denver, so I got the, the beanie on. But uh, 19 years old, I had a, a crappy serve. I went home one summer. I modeled Goran Ivanisevic, who's now coaching Djokovic. He had the biggest serve, a lefty serve at the time. I'm a lefty, and something miraculous happened. I added 20 miles an hour to my serve. I don't know how I did it. I went back to Stanford. The coaches were like, what the heck happened? 
And uh, I ended up playing two at Stanford my sophomore year, the number one, my junior and senior year, won two national titles there and allowed me to play pro tennis. And four years after I transformed my serve, I found myself playing Michael Chang at the US Open in front of 24,000 people. And um, really, we're gonna really fast forward this here. Uh, it was an entertaining match, one of probably the highlights of my career. You can find it on YouTube if you wanna look. Uh, but I was destined to move up the ladder uh, of the ATP tour. I was 150 in the world at the time. And three months after that, I had an injury to my ankle that was misdiagnosed for the better part of a year. I ended up having ankle surgery and knee surgery by the age of 25. And I came back from that and broke the top 100 in the world for the first time at the age of 30. I became obsessed with all things performance, mental, technique, footwork, movement, athletic performance, nutrition. And that set the stage for later. You know, I played 11 years on the tour, um, grinded as a quote-unquote journeyman, playing some of the best players in the world. I practiced with Sampras and Federer, and I played against some of the best. Um, but I created Tennis Evolution, this online platform where I'm super passionate about teaching players how to play the game, like really how to play the game the right way and an efficient way that maybe is being lost out there. So I just try to cut to the chase and help a lot of people get better at tennis. And I, and I love it. And I love performance and I love helping people transform their lives and their tennis. Yeah, I haven't actually heard that story in full. It's funny because for me, I think what, what made me such a, a tennis intellect, so to speak, is that I was smaller than most of my opponents. So I felt like I needed that uh, and you know some of it that that's not all of it, but a part of it is that for you, do you think your injuries kind of made you such a you know kind of the coach type? Yeah, I went to my first yoga class when I was twenty three years old because the ankle had lost flexibility and mobility. So when you see all these injuries out there on the tour, I just I, I hurt for them because I'm like, I went through it and I went through it 25 years ago, 23 years ago now, I'm 46 now. And uh, these injuries shaped who I am. They helped me to really go deep into why my body was breaking down, why I was 150 in the world instead of 50 in the world. What did Rafter and Sampras and Agassi and Philip, what were these guys doing with their bodies, with their minds, with their technique? that I wasn't taught coming from little Colorado. You know, I wasn't supposed to be a pro tennis player. And somehow I found myself on the big stage um, on, in many moments, uh, which was quite interesting. And it really set this for me to be, I think, one of the better coaches out there because I, I was analytical. I was cerebral. I wanted answers. And it's that deep passion for the game as a player and as a coach that I try to instill in everyone that I have a chance to touch, whether it's online or in person yeah you do a great job with that your youtube channel is called uh tennis evolution you do tactical breakdowns a lot of the time tying it to the pro tour and and i think it's it's really good for people who who play and want to take what the pros are actually doing and apply it to their own games regardless of of their level uh or if you don't play you learn kind of another layer, the technical layer of, uh, of what's going on in the pros. So let's, let's jump to the tour, Dubai, Acapulco. Um, we'll, uh, we'll talk about Federer a little bit and his, uh, his meniscus surgery. I want to get your take on that. Um, so let's see, Nadal Djokovic, who should we start with? What do you think? This is let's your go. show, Gil. I know, I know. It's, uh, let's go with, uh, let's go with <laughs> Nadal. Let's go with Nadal. 
Um, okay, so he had an easier yeah. path in in Acapulco than Djokovic did, but um, it seemed like he was a little bit fatigued at the Australian Open. Bowed out there to Dominic Team. What jumped off for me for Nadal was I haven't seen him in a while so willing to defend and uh, on a hard court. And his movement looked really good to me. I thought he had his energy back. Yeah. So a couple. I have a couple of comments, of course, a couple of takes with Nadal. And people, I think, are overlooking this. I don't know, Gil, if you've talked about this, but with Dominic, that match with Dominic Team, I was a four-setter, right? He was a four-setter. And I believe um, he lost three tiebreakers. Yes. So, so if you look at that, and I look at the pro game, I look at the experiences I had on the tour, he's probably three, three or four points away from being in the finals of Australia. I mean, the way the ball bounces on the pro tour, three tiebreakers, and for Nadal to go 0-3, if he played that match 10 times, there's no way he's losing three tiebreakers out of, you know, three, in a, three out of the you know, four sets that he played. And so we're looking at an Nadal that probably is in the finals on any other day. I think team got a little lucky. I think that um, obviously team was the better player on that day. But I, I still think, again, that he got a little unlucky to, get, to not get to the finals. And so you fast forward, his next tournament is in Acapulco. He's got time off to train to regroup, to work on his game. You know, Nadal and Djokovic and Federer do a great job with their schedules now. Nadal maybe plays a little more than the other guys, but certainly they understand these training blocks and they've got great coaching, great passion, great fire. So it's no surprise to me that he came back at the level he did. And, and as you alluded to, the draw was a little bit weaker and easier for him. Um, the top players there, you know, Zarev didn't play well in Acapulco. Uh, that's a whole nother story that we can probably get to another time. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm watching him play Fritz. And, you know, I had a friend of mine who likes to go out of on a limb with these big picks. And he said, Fritz is going to win. And, and I said, come on, man. Like, seriously. Like, and then I watched more of the match. And to me, it looks like a man against a boy. I mean, don't get me wrong. Fritz is, what, 20 in the world. He's doing amazing things. He's a great, great pro tennis player. He's elite. Yeah by many people's standards. But when you put their games on a tennis court, one-on-one, mano-a-mano, with Nadal's biceps and Nadal's shoulders, and Fritz like, looks like this out there. Like he literally physically, even he's though he's a big five. guy. Yeah, but he looks like this. If, if, we, if we put him side by side, the shoulders aren't as wide, the body's not as strong. I know he does his physical training, but you're, it's two different animals. If you look at Pete Sampras 20 years ago, that dude had shoulders. That guy was physical. And I just, when I'm watching them play, I'm like, it's like he's bringing a knife to a gunfight with Nadal. It's just not even close. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, you'll be able to speak to this, but people have a lot of reasons for why they weren't better, why they weren't this good. At the end of the day, genetics play a really big role in this now you got to do put the work in right but i agree with you that taylor fritz is one of those players who is probably if he maximizes his ability as a tennis player will probably still be at a physical disadvantage regardless of how hard he works compared to other players do you agree i i agree and when when you you know i'm kind of i'm an innovator in in the way that i think 
And this is no disrespect that whoever he's training with on the physical side, you know, I think that if he was with an innovative trainer or fitness, he could probably close the gap in the things that I talked about. So yes, genetics do play a role, but I do think if he trained uh, a little differently, maybe a little smarter, we would see some changes. But again, when I see him walk, he looks a little bit knock-kneed or, you know, just a little bit off with the way he walks. He doesn't look as athletic as the, as the elite, elite guys. And I'm talking Federer, Djokovic, yes. and Nadal. And it's very apparent when they get on the court, Nadal defends better, uh, obviously defends better growing up on the clay, playing on the clay courts. I mean, these guys are now standing 20 feet back to return serve. You know, all of them. Monfils is doing it. Nadal is doing it. It's a huge advantage to play deeper in the court. Team, all these guys. And I'm watching these points played out. And I have a player that I'm working with that's in the 400s in the world. And he said, man, if I played Nadal tomorrow, I would just go underhand serve all day. Because honestly, you could probably hit service winners. Or if nothing, you're getting him to hit a low slice instead of his heavy ball. That could be the next change in the tennis. If someone's willing to be an innovator and, and not just do it as a one-off to actually perfect that serve. And I don't think anyone's going to have the guts to do it. I know Maybe. Kyrgios do, does it as a Bublik. Go ahead. Alexander Maybe. Bublik. I, but I, I honestly, I think there's something to it. And people can say that it's, I've even argued that it's, it's not great sportsmanship, but yeah. listen, if Nadal's playing 25 feet back on these massive courts, you should go with the Ginsu underhand serve until he moves up and then pop him into the body with a 125. And now, now, we're, now, we're, bringing, now we're bringing some different guns to this, this, sword, this, this fight, this gun fight. Yeah. Uh, let's, go, <laughs> let's go to Djokovic. That's a fun conversation. Uh, there's layers to yeah. it. You we can talk for hours, I yeah, know. You, you mentioned the, the etiquette of it where uh, a lot of people, of course, including Nadal, when Kyrgios did it in Acapulco last yeah. year, didn't take too kindly to it. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned Nadal lost three tie breaks to team in, uh, in that Australian Open match because Novak Djokovic over and over and over again in the last year has seemingly come through those kinds of matches. And in the biggest moments, he's just winning all the big points, elevating when he needs to. And the final against Tsitsipas in Dubai was, was no exception. I thought early on Tsitsipas was the better player, but... Latter stages of the first set, Djokovic gets the break. Latter stages of the second set, Djokovic gets the break. Um, how, to you, in, how is Djokovic just able to elevate and sometimes win a match where he's not, for the entire match, the better player? So I'm going to go woo-woo here. I really believe the, the depths of belief and the depths of meditation, the, the visualization that he does, I literally believe the universe conspires to help him win more because of the work he does. And it'll be interesting to see what type of comments we get underneath this video when I make that comment. But make no mistake, this guy is spending more time on his personal development, on his belief system than anybody else out there. And he, he puts it out there on Instagram. I know personally, I study this stuff. I've studied it for years. Um, I know some of the thought leaders that he's spending time with, and these guys would be considered out there. And it's not just the guy that he hired three years ago that was professing love and whatever, you know, yeah. free love out there. 
No, these are people that are, uh, literally create change. And when you, cre when you create, when you up-level your belief system, the universe does conspire to give you more of what you want. It's just energy. And if you believe that, that would explain why he's winning these crazy matches that he has no business winning. There's no logic that it could explain what he is doing. Now, let's get to a little bit more logic here. And let's go to the Monfils match. <clears throat> three match points, six three in the breaker. Yep. Monf let's talk about Monfils. He hits a massive second serve down the tee in the ad court, and he gets a backhand up, a backhand on the baseline, and he goes down the line and misses it wide. Now, I don't know if <clears throat> I don't know if Djokovic was able to do his Jedi mind tricks and get in his head, but let's just ignore Djokovic for a moment. You have no business trying that shot at 6-3 in the breaker if you want to beat Djokovic. You play that ball solid cross court and you make the guy beat you. And he didn't do it there. At 6-4, yeah. at 6-4, he missed a routine forehand long, like routine. And then at 6-5, he missed a wide passing shot wide. So two out of his three mistakes were wide. And I always tell my players, never miss wide, especially in these big moments. And yep. what happens is players press and they get tight and they pull the trigger and they want to end the point too soon. He should have made Djokovic. Now, it's easy for us to logically say that in the moment. But truly, if he's going to beat Djokovic, that's, he needed to play higher percentage tennis, which is what Djokovic does in those moments. You talk about belief. Djokovic was 16-0 and against Monfils heading into that match. And, and yeah, it, it was there, – there aren't many chokes in tennis. I hate that word. I think fans normally throw it out way too often. Um, you know, Felix Ojeal-Aseem is being called a choker for being 0-5 in finals, even though – all five finals were against great players and he just lost the matches. But by the it, way, I do think he has a mental thing going on, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. There's something to it, but it's not fully, um, I, you know, I, I don't think he should be called a choker at 20 years old right now. Uh, right. But for Monfils, it was a choke. And then he did run out of gas, which he does all the time um, against, against Djokovic. Yeah, I mean, again, your decision-making changes when you focus on the result instead of the process. And my guess is that when he got to the edge, to the brink of beating the great Novak Djokovic, his decision-making got skewed. I've been there before. I've made those weird choices that you would never make when it's 1-1 in the first set. But he has to be better than that. He has to be clear-headed and say, when I get that backhand, I'm going cross-court on that first ball. I'm not going to miss a plus one. When I get a passing shot, I'm going to dip it down the middle at his feet. And that's what Djokovic does. Yeah, which Mon and Monfils, in, at one all in the first set, he's been doing a better job with his shot selection. I mean, his shot selection 100%. is 100 times better than it was, you know, five, six years ago. All right, I want to get to two more players. R real quick with Sissipas. Okay. He broke him to go up 5-3. Djokovic broke him with a ridiculous oh, yeah. backhand cross-court pass. I mean, no one in the world can hit that shot. So if you're Novak Djokovic and you know on a break point you can play D better than anyone in the world, that's got to be comforting. Like, you yes. don't have to take a chance. He runs over. He hits a little slice chip forehand on the run. He runs over and he just shovels the eight. Not shoveled. He lasered an angle backhand pass from 20 feet behind the baseline, that has to be comforting. If you have that movement and you have those defensive skills, 
the, the, the odds start to go in your favor when you can play defensive ten, tennis yeah. like that. Yeah, in my head, I was like, oh, what a beautiful breakpoint save this is about to be by Pass, And boom, that passing shot was, uh, was unreal. Uh, let's talk um, more about Pass. I want to get your take on things he had to say after his matches this week where sometimes he feels like, and, you know, he loves his parents, but he feels like they're too involved. You've <laughs> probably encountered this just being around tennis uh, oh numerous God. times. What are your thoughts on parental involvement? Yeah, we call them helicopter parents. And these are the parents that are hovering. They just love to hover and they love to be in control and make sure everything is okay. Now, I believe every great player has to have one or both parents significantly involved. They got to be riding. They're almost like the, the chair. I, I look at they're the chairman. You know, you hire the coach who's the CEO and the, the, they're the chairman. They're in the investors. They're writing the checks. They're making decisions when they're junior tennis players. And CeCe Pass's father is intimately involved. I mean, he is the coach. He's out there all the time. He's so involved. Um, it's just that fine line. It's that danger zone. And most parents, again, don't have the communication skills, the personal development skills to actually navigate that. And it's very difficult when there's emotions involved. And so what I would say is that these parents need to list their child who's saying they're too involved and basically say, okay, it's not necessary that I need to back off, but maybe I need to change my approach. And that means they need to look at themselves. And most people don't have that growth mindset. They just are the way they are. They're not going to change. And that's what freaks these kids out that are growing up. And then sometimes they end up rebelling and it, it, it doesn't end pretty. In this case, he's doing so well, he'll probably be able to navigate it but there's probably some damage being done psychologically that he's going to have to figure out down the road. Um, but yeah, I mean, as he gets older, they're going to probably have to back off just like Djokovic's parents had to do. Yeah, that's a good point. And a, and a good, they were very involved. Djokovic. Yes. Yeah. And, they were uh, very involved. They were like this all the time. And now you don't see them doing that as much. They're not around as much. And so with maturity, they'll, they'll sort that out. But you know, without his father, there's no way that he's where he's at. Which he acknowledges to, to his credit. But, uh, yep. yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, okay, let's go to Medvedev. And I don't think that we did uh, – I don't think we've really spoken even since his initial rise. But now he started 2020 on the wrong foot, hasn't gone deep in any tournaments, uh, suffered some, some pretty alarming defeats – what is your read on this guy's incredibly unorthodox, in my opinion, one-of-a-kind game? And uh, how do you see the rest of his 2020 playing out? Yeah, uh, when he was on his run last summer, my thoughts were, first of all, I was surprised that he made that run because I didn't think the run matched his ability level. So I was like, wow, how is this guy winning week after week? And then my second big concept was, how is he going to back it up? Because it's, you see this a lot where a player goes on a run, and if they're not as solid as a Federer or a Djokovic or a Nadal day in and day out, which I don't think anyone else in the world is at this point. I mean, Andy Murray had a run as well that, that lasted for extended time. But it's very difficult to maintain that unless you are just rock solid. And it's clear that Medvedev has some holes that um, whether it's mentally, emotionally, 
uh, that sophomore success, that sophomore slump is kind of kicking in, if you will. And it's very difficult once you get to number one, or in his case, I don't know what his career was. Did he get to three, three or four? Um, yep. No, three, maybe four, just time. four. I don't four. Okay. Three. So you get to four in the world, then it's, it's much harder to stay at four in the world than it is to get to four in the world. It's a whole nother dynamic, which makes the run of the big three just ridiculous. Like they're competing against the best in the world. So with him, I look at his game. I think he surprised some people, his unorthodox nature. I think people's players start to get more used to that weird style. Mm -hmm. And then he can't really defend against that because he does so many unorthodox things that guys are now getting used to. And I think, again, emotionally trying to maintain that is difficult. And so I would say that, first of all, there's no way that he's going to go on the run he did this summer. So unless he makes a move in the next three or four months, his ranking is going to drop at year end. And we might see him settle. I don't know where is he ranked right now. In the race to London? Outside the top or, 10, or, I'm sure, but... Right, you know. but the overall, the overall 52-week rankings, is he five or six? I think he's still like five. He hasn't lost yeah, so. any, I mean, you got to keep in mind, he, he wasn't really that good at this stage of 2019. Right. So he's not losing a lot of rankings points. So we're going to see a guy who, by the end of the year, if he doesn't get some results, is going to be outside the top 20 in the world. So uh, we've seen that before. You know, Dimitrov won the world championships uh, when the guys were hurt. Um, so yeah, I think, I think he'll probably settle around 15 by the end of the year, but, uh, he's still got great tennis left in him. You know, he just probably has to get this sorted out a little bit more and obviously shore up probably a few things in his game. Yeah. And I picked him at the beginning of the year to finish six, which was a back step right. and I was getting heat for that. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. He could, he could turn it around or not. Uh, we'll see. I would have said, I would have said he would have been in that range. Uh, probably that would be conservative. Hey, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, the way he's really started, it, it's going to be hard for him to be inside the top 15 or top 20, because how is he going to go? He's not going to get to the finals of the U S open this year. It's mm -hmm. not going to happen. He's not going to win. He's not going to win. What did he win Cincinnati? And, and remember yes. when he played Djokovic in Cincinnati, Djokovic was out to lunch in that match. He was hitting like when not, Medvedev was hitting two first serves and they were going in. Yeah. Yeah. And so remember <laughs> in those matches, there were points where he was losing or struggling and he said, I'm just going to go for it. Well, that's harder to do when you're the hunted instead of the hunter. So I think he's, it's going to be tougher for him. Let's end on Federer. The, uh, the meniscus surgery, he got arthroscopic surgery What's your read on, on this injury? It seems like it's pretty similar to what he had in, in uh, 2016, at the end of 2016, and he came back better than ever. Um, so I, I'm just going to kind of give you the floor on, on the meniscus injury for Federer. Yeah. So when I watched him in Australia, he was clearly struggling with his movement, but nobody yeah. knew there was an injury. So credit to Federer for – keeping it on the down low. I thought maybe his back was bothering him again. Um, but, you know, he almost lost to Sandgren. Uh, he almost lost to Millman. And people are talking about this. I'm like, dude, something is up. Because he just – when he's on firing on all cylinders and he's healthy, those guys can't stand a chance in a, in a slam. So I, I knew something was up. I thought it was the back. And to be honest, I was quite surprised to hear that he was getting surgery because I had a meniscus surgery. That was my second surgery at age 24. And whenever I would squat down, I'd feel a 
pain in the back of my knee and I couldn't play. I couldn't run. I couldn't do much. Like, you know, you can play a little, but like three out of five sets and a grand slam against the best in the world, not happening. So I always, it's interesting to me when these guys, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, they're seemingly okay in matches or they're moving well. They're not limping around the court. They're not grimacing. Like I was grimacing when I had a meniscus and I felt it catch. I'm like, oh, you know, that's off. Like, and then they all of a sudden have a surgery. I'm like, this is so bizarre to me how these guys literally have a meniscus. They never show the pain. And then they get surgery two weeks later. I just don't, that part I don't get. I don't understand that. Uh Um, So that's one take. The second is that, you know, I do racket fit. For those that aren't familiar, most of you probably aren't. I work with a group that actually, it's called the Body Tennis Connection. Uh, We analyze what a person, we give them an assessment, a screen, and we analyze what what their uh, joints, what they can do with their stability and their mobility. And most of the time when the stacks are, the, the joints are stacked on top of each other, and when you go from foot to ankle to knee to hip, it should fall in an alternating pattern. So your ankle is supposed to be mobile, your knee is supposed to be stable, and your hip is supposed to be mobile. But what ends up happening is you get an ankle that's fixed because you tape your ankles or you lose mobility in your ankle. So it becomes stable. So then the next joint above it gets affected. Or if you have a hip that's supposed to be mobile, it's supposed to be able to move it and it becomes locked, then the knee bears the brunt. So what it tells me is that Federer has something going on with his feet and his ankles and his hips, but it's showing up in the knee and it hasn't been corrected. And it, and the best athletes in the world are the best compensators. They can get away with a lot for a long time. And he's a very efficient mover and he does have high level training. So it's just catching up to him at this stage. And if it's a minor meniscus, I mean, it sounds like it's significant if he's not back till July, but if it's minor and that it's not this reconstruction of the knee, I still think he could come back and be great again. Like I don't, I doubted it before with the knee and he came back and won the Australian open. So I'm not writing this guy off yet. I'm never yeah, going to write this how guy How important off. is that word arthroscopic? Because he made sure to make it clear that, that the surgery was arthroscopic. I mean, I don't know if that, that, I think it's, me, I think, that suggests yeah. more minor to me. Yeah, my only concern with the meniscus, and again, I'm not a doctor. I don't know the yeah. details, but here's what I do know. I've been around the block for many years, and I've studied all of this, and I've worked with physical therapists and doctors, and I ask a lot of questions. I'm a curious George out there. And, uh, you know, if you're taking some of the meniscus out, my concern would be eventually that cartilage would go to bone on bone at some point. And we haven't seen that with Federer yet, but you wonder if the next surgery could lead to that. So it's always tricky when you go under the knife. It's still surgery. I'm not writing this guy off yet. There's no way. I I think the guy still has great tennis left in him. But if he comes back and he's not moving, when when he's coming back and he's not moving well after, that could be the sign that this could be the beginning, the very beginning, or the, not the beginning of the end, the end. So we'll see. Yeah, we will. Um, okay. This has been really fun and uh, we'll do it more and more often. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure everyone will appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah. And if anybody wants to learn how to play tennis faster and easier, this is my shameless plug, head over to tennis evolution. I've also got a website I'm super committed to helping you. If you really want to improve your game or if you have a child, uh, if you're a parent of a child and you want to get to the next level, super accessible content. We also have an app that's super cool. 
Gil, thanks for bringing me on. Had a blast, and I know we're going to do it again. Absolutely. Everyone, listen to Jeff. You should go and do that. Uh, talk to you soon. See ya. All right. So that was that. A great discussion with Jeff Salzenstein. He said uh, some really interesting stuff. I felt a little bit bad at the end there about making him Dr. Salzenstein, where maybe I shouldn't have <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have asked him to uh, to, to go that in depth on on Federer's injury. But he he is able to provide much more than I can on uh, on the the physical kind of anatomy of a tennis player when it comes to the stuff that the work he does with racket fit, as he mentioned. Moving on in the program, and again, uh, we'll have Jeff on again, um, and I think uh, I'll, I'll go on his channel sometimes as well, which you should check out. Uh, but let's keep it moving here with the uh, French Open Power Rankings. What I'm going to do is uh, I'll reissue the next French Open Power Rankings will be after Miami. So this is a preliminary... French Open Power Rankings uh, before the Sunshine Double. And we will revisit it before the clay court season starts, which will be after Miami. And then once the clay court season starts, this will become a weekly thing. And I don't want to dwell too much on it because it's not that important right now. I think most of the players are focused on winning a really big tournament coming up, which is Indian Wells. But at number 10 is Roberta Bautista Agut. Very consistent player. Physically tough. Uh, but not the traditional clay quarter in the respect uh, where he's kind of a flatter hitter that sometimes benefits from a lower bounce in faster courts. At number nine is Daniil Medvedev. You might be surprised to see him as low as number nine. Part of this is his recent form, but another part of it is I really don't expect him to have that much success on clay, and I know that he made the semifinals of Monte Carlo last last year. But uh, I envision Medvedev struggling to create a lot of offense on this surface, given how much uh, it requires power and generation of pace with uh, racket head acceleration, which Medvedev lacks. Number eight, his compatriot Andre Rublev. Again, uh, he hasn't really proven much on clay, but... I, I think his game should suit the surface quite well, and he continues to go somewhat deep in tournaments. What I'm waiting for with Rublev is to have that signature win, which he hasn't had in 2020, but he's had a lot of wins. Number seven, Stan Wawrinka, someone who I feel like continues to show flashes of brilliance and then just sometimes lacking consistency and going through matches with Tons and tons of unforced errors that, that have resulted in some disappointments. But Vavrinka had a pretty good Aussie Open and is always very good on clay. And, of course, has won the French Open before. Number six, Gael Monfils. Back-to-back -back finals for the Frenchman. I, I love the potential for Monfils' level. I just don't know how much his endurance will get in the way of any kind of major run in the French Open. But right now... He's playing better tennis than the four guys below him, and I'm pretty confident in saying that. At number five, Alexander Zverev. You know, after breaking through at the Aussie and, and breaking his kind of, you know, quarterfinal barrier, I'll say, uh, I do think that Zverev, his best surface should be clay. And I think he's going to have a really good clay court season, and I think he can do well at the French as long as he is mentally in a good place and as long as he's not double faulting a ton. 
Number four, Stefanos Tsitsipas. Of course, uh, two good weeks now. Back-to-back finals for him as well. And Tsitsipas, a player who has already had really good results at the Fr- on clay, I should say, not the French Open. Uh, lost the epic match to Stan Wawrinka last year, but I think is in good position to make a run in clay. I love his forehand. The heavy topspin forehand will suit him very well on the clay courts, running around it, using the inside in, inside out. Um, and he can be very steady, which is a necessity on clay. Number three, Novak Djokovic. Uh, doesn't take much explanation here beyond justifying why he's not higher. At number two, Dominic Team. I think Djokovic needs to prove to me why he should be above Dominic Team at this point. Team has pushed Djokovic match after match, goes five sets in Australia, beats him at the French Open last year on a slow court. Right now, Team deserves to be above Djokovic. Even though Djokovic is undefeated in 2020 and all that, um, I think that that team has shown enough on clay courts against Djokovic where he deserved to at least start clay court season above Novak. And number one is Rafa Nadal. No reason um, why Nadal shouldn't be number one with his historic French Open success and um, what he's shown in 2020. All right. Comment response time. Of course, this is a long episode with the Jeff Salzenstein interview. I need to think about if this is... I got to think about in the future what how I want to structure these shows when I have an interview. But right now, this is how it is. First question is from Lancelot. He says, we have seen Novak incorporating a lot more drop shots in Dubai. Do you think that's a new approach? Or is it some sort of reflection of Novak's physical status? Or is he making uh, his transition to shorten the rallies? I already touched on this earlier, but I will expand on it here. Is Novak's physicality diminishing? I think in some respect, yes. Does he have less endurance, less stamina? Uh, Does he, you know, can he last as long as he used to? I don't believe so. I have not seen Djokovic in a match where he's really physically pushed for a really, really long time. I have not seen him deliver a physical uh, or a consistent physical output for a long period where someone is challenging him and moving him around the court on a consistent basis for a long period of time. I actually don't think he can do it anymore. Um... There have been energy dips in his matches. Uh, Well, in his match against team, there was an energy dip. That could be an example. So I do think he needs to be better in short rallies. I do think he needs to find ways to shorten rallies. There's nothing wrong with that. Federer's had to do it. Nadal's had to do it. Djokovic will do it. And making his backhand more of an offensive weapon will require the drop shot. It will require the drop shot. Again, because it's not as big as the forehand. Doesn't hit it as hard. Um, so incorporating the drop shot will make his drive all that more potent and will give him another way to weaponize his backhand. Physically, I also think his court coverage has not so much declined. I think his court coverage is pretty much in line with 
what it was when he was in his prime. I still think that he's covering the port court incredibly well. So I think there's a distinction in his physical decline where his endurance and his cardio is not where it used to be. His court coverage is pretty close to where it used to be, but uh, he still needs to make an effort to shorten rallies, and the drop shots are good for that. The next two comments, I'm going to morph them because the third one is a response to the second one. And uh, this is unfortunately some classic fighting between the fan bases. Maurice left a couple long comments. I need to shorten them in the interest of time. He says, uh, I'll read two comments. They're both upvoted a lot. What would the Grand Slam count be if you compare Federer and Nadal and two slams were on clay, two on grass, and if you compare Djokovic and Nadal to... Okay, so it's that argument. So it's what would it be if there were two on clay, two on... Whatever. Two on harder grass. Um... And then the second one is, Gil, can you discuss the disadvantage Nadal has had in the Grand Slam race? He only gets one slam on his best surface. Federer and Djokovic play well on grass and hardcourt, so they get three slams on a surface that suits them best. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, then the third comment is a response to that, which says, uh, Maurice, are you on drugs? Decline of Novak Djokovic. While my man, yeah, because other comments say Djokovic is declining, um, which, you know, I just don't think there's any need to diminish other players' accomplishments. I think it's enough if you're an Adal fan or a Federer fan or a Djokovic fan to celebrate your own players' accomplishments. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's he hasn't lost a match, so it, it, it's hard to make the claim that he's declining just because he's not dominating or just because there are portions of the match where he hasn't looked good at the end of the day it's it's been impressive that he's found a way to win all these matches but when it in regards to the to the clay court argument uh yeah i i suppose there is something to it um but it, it's just how it is so i don't know what kind of conclusion you can make from it, I mean, there needs to be an unevenness because there are three surfaces and four events. So there's going to be one surface repeated. That's just how it is. So if it were clay, which it very well could be, I mean, but the point is there's no use in extrapolating what could have been. The point is Nadal is also really good on hard courts and grass courts. And yeah, his dominance on clay is unequaled. No one is taking that away from him. No one will ever take that away from him. And regardless of who goes down as the consensus goat, which probably will be no one, there will not be a consensus. That is what we're heading towards in all likelihood. But regardless of who goes down as that consensus goat, that all-surface greatest of all time, which will never be a title that everyone will agree on, one title that people will be agree on will be able to agree on is that Nadal has the greatest accomplishments on clay courts of all time. And why isn't that enough? I don't know. Because it probably should be. And that's all I'll say. I, I gotta end I gotta end I gotta end the comments there because I feel like every week there there is a discussion about this and um it's a little bit tiresome because there's tennis being played between Federer, well, not Federer right now, but there's tennis being played and topics that are actually, you know, pressing, like right now, you know, uh, things that are happening right now. 
that are interesting and that, you know, should be discussed where this entire, this GOAT debate is something that, of course, is just always hanging overhead, but it's not going anywhere. There is no urgency to try to dissect this right now at this point in time. To me, there's no timeliness. At the same time, I have to acknowledge I read the comments that are upvoted the most. And these are the comments that are up, upvoted um, the most. So that's it. Uh, one more before I wrap up. It's from Ravi. He says, um, hi, Gil. I think Indian Well is a perfect hardcourt for Nadal to beat Novak. High bounce, and Novak can have trouble hitting through Rafa's defense on slower courts. Your thoughts, please. Well, um, first of all, high bounce, key. Key for Nadal to beat Djokovic. The way Nadal uh, neutralizes Djokovic's backhand, it must be with variation, mixing up heights, using the slice backhand down the line to open up the, the uh, down-the-line forehand when Djokovic hits that cross court. Um, and then sometimes going high loopy, testing Djokovic's footwork. Yeah, key. The high bounce is a key for Nadal to beat Djokovic. In that sense, yes, Indian Wells is definitely uh, an ideal hardcourt for Nadal to beat Djokovic. I 100% agree. The second part of it would be what I would have questions about. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if Djokovic would have trouble hitting through Nadal on um, on an Indian Wells hardcourt. I'd have to see that play out because it, it's it's something that's hard to predict, and I just don't know if it's slow enough for that to be the case. It'll be interesting. Uh, we will see. Let's see, when does the Indian Wells draw? Anyway, Indian Wells preview will come out when the Indian Wells draw comes out. Until next time, hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.